0: I'm reading from Proverbs, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, and chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Prologue. For learning about wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, For gaining instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity. To teach shrewdness to the simple, knowledge and prudence to the young. Let the wise, too, hear and gain in learning, and the discerning acquire skill. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Admonition to trust and honor God. My child, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and abundant welfare they will give you. Do not let loyalty and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will find favor and high regard in the sight of God and of people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing for your flesh and a refreshment for your body.
1: I don't know if you noticed, uh, the, the songs we've got this morning, they may be in a slightly more contemporary genre to suit the musicians that we thought we had available. But uh, they and also the, uh, the the anthem we had, all pick up on themes relating to wisdom and what it means to be wise and uh, th- there's a reason for this it's because we're just beginning what will be a short summer series Looking at the wisdom tradition from the Hebrew Bible. So this week and next week, I'm going to be taking a look at uh, Proverbs and then uh, we've got a a couple of visiting speakers, but I'm hoping they'll also be picking up on some of these themes as well. So as I was uh, preparing for this this week, I found myself thinking um, many families have Proverbs. I know mine does. And a few years ago now, it was actually for, uh, I think it was for one of my dad's birthdays, my sister and I decided to start writing down um, sayings from Simon and Max's uh, dad. And we we kind of used these as as a little talk at one of his significant birthdays. Uh, And and so I'm going to give you some of these in a minute. And just to let you know, a lot of these I hear in my dad's voice. Um, And I've added a few others to it over the years. These are the kind of the not-so-wise sayings of the Woodman family. And I offer these not because they have any uh, spiritual or indeed material wisdom, but uh, partly because it's a kind of a nice introduction to a sermon, but also uh, I want to invite each of us to think about what the principles are that we live our lives by. Because we all of us have little sayings, things we say to ourselves that, uh, that help us take our decisions. What's the wisdom that guides you through life? What proverbs have come down to you through your family or your cultural tradition? Anyway, here uh, for your amusement at least in no particular order are some, of, uh, some, some examples of woodman wisdom. The first is that the world, Simon, does not owe you a living. You can make your own luck. Sometimes it's true, you've just got to be in the right place at the right time, but sometimes you can plan this. Success, therefore, is often just about turning up. And genius is 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. Knowledge is power. And moderation in all things the hardest part about swimming a mile is picking up your kit bag how on earth do you write a book answer one sentence at a time if a job's worth doing it's worth doing well and if you don't have the right tool for the job then the first job is to make the right tool measure it twice and cut it once and certainly do not try to make up on the road what you've lost elsewhere don't be in a hurry to get to your own funeral give a new job three years before deciding whether to stay or not don't measure your personal progress over the last year look back five years to see if you're in a rut you've got a brain use it i'm organized because i'm lazy it's less work to do the job efficiently. I don't look busy because I did it right the first time. Procrastination is a key to success. It's amazing how many jobs you've been meaning to get around to that can be accomplished by the simple task of avoiding the one job you really don't want to get around to. Don't spoil the ship for a half of tar. Always quit while you're ahead. And so always leave the party early whilst it's still fun to be there. Now, you may not like all of these. I'd be very surprised if everyone agreed with all of them, but that's not the point. The point is we do all live by our own inherited wisdom traditions. And in the book of Proverbs, we have the inherited wisdom tradition of ancient Israel. And whilst we may not like some of what's in there, and whilst we are very unlikely to agree with all of it, There is, nonetheless, wisdom here that we can helpfully hear to weigh, to consider, and possibly to make our own. It's good to have Benjamin with us this morning. I met Benjamin down at King's College London, and uh, we've got other King's alumni in the room, uh, I know. Does anybody know the uh, Latin proverb of King's College London? It is Sancte et Sapiente. Nigel, you're the resident classicist. Any idea? Uh, Holy and wise? Yeah, with holiness and wisdom, holy and wise. What does it mean to hold holiness, our faith, along with sometimes quite worldly expressions of wisdom? What does it mean to be both holy and wise? And this is what the book of Proverbs is trying to drill into. Some of it is very worldly. Some of it is quite unhelpful. I mean, you know, some of the Proverbs about a nagging wife, we might want to (laughs) put those aside. But, But there's much in there about how do you live in the world with wisdom and holiness. Um, And there are certain characteristics of the biblical wisdom tradition that sets it apart from more secular sayings or personal proverbs, such as those with which I began from the Woodman wisdom tradition. So, firstly, the, the quality that the Hebrew Bible calls wisdom finds its meaning in relation to God. Within the Hebrew Bible, wisdom is an expression of holiness. It is an expression of God. And so, as we heard in our reading this morning, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. So the first thing is that wisdom finds its meaning in some way in relation to God. Secondly, true wisdom is found within the covenant community of God's people, through Israel and the church and their story of salvation and acts of mercy. Wisdom is a communal thing amongst the people of God. And it's fine having Woodman's little sayings that Woodman finds helpful or unhelpful sometimes, but that's not really wisdom, true biblical wisdom begins with God and takes shape in our community. As the book of James in the New Testament puts it, I do like the book of James, I like it more and more as the years go by. Who is wise and knowledgeable among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. And the third aspect of the wisdom tradition is that wisdom is not always readily apparent. Sometimes true wisdom is the very opposite of everything that human reason and intuition might conclude. As Paul puts it in his letter to the Corinthians, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. But whilst godly wisdom made known through the people of faith and distinct from the worldly wisdom that surrounds us whilst that may be a fair summary of the biblical wisdom tradition its interpretation within christian history is a little more murky so just bear with me for a moment as i take a dive into what has become known as allegorical interpretation and i'm doing this because it's something that's quite popular in a number of churches today and some of you may have experienced this way of reading um, the the Hebrew wisdom tradition. The wisdom tradition boasts a most unusual history of interpretation over the last couple of thousand years within Christianity. Because unlike almost all other biblical texts, with only a, a few exceptions, Wisdom for about the first 1,500 years of uh, the Christian Church was interpreted allegorically. So uh, what this means is that wisdom was interpreted maybe as an allegory for the church or an allegory for the Holy Spirit or an allegory for the human mind. Sometimes wisdom was read as an allegory for Mary, the mother of Jesus, or some other spiritual ideal. It was... Somewhat strangely, rarely understood as advice on how to literally live in the world. And this came about because of the dualistic way in which the early church was inclined to oppose spiritual things on the one hand to physical things on the other. The third and fourth centuries of the Common Era were critical for this development of what's become called Neoplatonism. And during this time, churches in Antioch. Uh, practiced what we might call a, a literal reading. They read the wisdom tradition as advice on how to live. But the more dominant church tradition centered in Alexandria practiced spiritual, moralistic, and allegorical readings. The differences are subtle, but nonetheless, this idea that wisdom is read allegorically still has a foothold in many churches. And I think it's something that is just worth naming because I want to invite us to step away from it a little bit. And one way of doing that might be uh, to change um, the way we think of it uh, not so much as literal and allegorical um, so for example, in the last century it 's been common to think of literal as being scientific or mathematically true. Uh, this is uh, the the result of um, the result of the Enlightenment within Europe and so When the Bible speaks of God coming in the clouds, give you an example, Uh, a contemporary literal reading might mean that God is literally going to come on those big sort of fluffy things that we get up in the sky that rain comes from. And I can think of Christians now who would say God is going to come in the clouds and at that point we're all gonna look up and we're gonna see clouds billowing in and, and Jesus will arrive seated on rain clouds. Well, within the ancient world, literal carried more of a literary meaning. So there was a broader appreciation for the poetic, for the symbolic. So the clouds could be the literal ones that they see, we see, but they could also be a sign of God coming from a higher place that we cannot see. And it may be helpful for us us to have this kind of literary interpretation when we come to our readings of the Hebrew wisdom tradition. So let's not be too allegorical about it, because then it kind of ceases to be of any earthly use. But let's not be too literal about it either, because then it just gets weird and silly. Let's try and find a middle ground where we still hear this tradition as wisdom for us to take seriously, but we neither go to either pole of overly allegorizing or overly literalizing. Jerome, in the late 4th to early 5th centuries, he promoted the allegorical and spiritualised way of reading the wisdom tradition. And this set the tone for Christian interpretation for over a thousand years. And it took Martin Luther and a few others to start drawing back from the overly spiritualised back towards a more literary, at least, approach. And these days, most interpreters informed by the discipline of biblical studies would say, well, let's try and read these ancient texts primarily against their ancient background, rather than as an allegory of the church or indeed as direct instructions for living in the present. This doesn't mean, of course, that these texts don't still speak to us, because, of course, our humanity intersects with the common humanity of those who first wrote and received this wisdom. So, although the context has changed, and we do need to therefore be cautious about applying ancient wisdom to a contemporary context, careful engagement can still draw us into a world where true wisdom is found in God, is enacted through the community of faith, and does so in ways that challenge the wisdom of the world. So, the opening verses of the book of Proverbs, which we heard read for us a few moments ago, set up some reasons why we might spend time with this book. Um, I wonder, I'll I'll do it as a show of hands, because I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of, one way or the other. Has anybody ever actually sat down and read the book of Proverbs all the way through? Yeah, some have, some haven't. Yeah, I should have said I did too. Um, Yeah, it's, it's one of those strange things that some of us have read it and found help in it, others haven't. So why might we Come away from this sermon and go home and spend a couple of hours reading the book of Proverbs because I would want to encourage you to do so with the caveats around interpretation that I've already given you. Well, the beginning of the book certainly sets up a reason why we might. It makes quite bold claims for the benefits of studying wisdom. It leaves the reader in no doubt that wisdom is of great value to the day-by-day living of human life. So we're told um, that to appreciate the benefits of wisdom. Verse 2, wisdom uh, is useful in gaining wisdom and understanding. Verse 3, in living a disciplined and just life. Verse 4, in enabling the immature to become mature. And verse five in enabling the wise to become even wiser. Proverbs not only provides wisdom instruction, but it says it will also teach one how to interpret the sayings of the wise, because it seems even reading Proverbs requires wisdom, too. And the object lesson par excellence, of course, is that the individual to whom the authorship of these proverbs is attributed is none other than the wise and fabulously wealthy King Solomon himself. Now, I'm afraid here we do have to engage our critical facilities again just for a moment. It is remote to the point of profoundly unlikely that King Solomon actually wrote this book. So I hate to burst that bubble for you. But thankfully, that's not really the point. Because ancient, royal, slightly mythological figures like Solomon and and David before him were renowned through the stories that were told about them for their expertise in exercising judgment. Um, In the ancient world, the ultimate court of appeal was the king. Uh, You didn't go to the High Court and the Supreme Court and all that kind of stuff. Uh, when you'd run out of um, local judgment, you appealed to the king. So an ideal king was someone who was supreme in wisdom and justice and jurisprudence and and law and all that stuff. And so Solomon, as uh, one of Israel's idealized ancient kings, was, of course, somebody who was set up as therefore being supremely wise. And the stories told about his reign set him up as the only king, really, to reign through a time of prolonged peace. I mean, David, his father, before him, his stories are all about war. And as soon as you get to Solomon's sons, who divide the empire between them, well, they spend the rest of the the next thousand years all at war with one another. So Solomon's story tells this kind of mythic, idealized point in Israel's history. Of prolonged peace and how did he achieve it well the stories tell us he told it by being more wise than anybody else because wisdom leads to peace and in all of Israel's historical writings he's remembered uh, not only for his wisdom but also for his building of the temple uh, which is itself described as being an act of wisdom I mean we I'm sure all know the most famous story told about Solomon's wisdom, which was this conundrum of what to do with a child who who has uh, ended up with two women claiming uh, in, claiming ownership of this child, claiming motherhood of it. And he, he in his wisdom, he, he gets the sword and threatens to cut the child in half and says, "Well, it's fair, isn't it? You get half each. That'll solve it." And one of the mothers comes forward and goes, no, no, I relinquish my claim. Uh, Give it to the other woman. And he goes, ah, you're the real mother because the real mother would want to save the life of her child at all costs. I mean, it's a classic kind of story. And uh, it's, it's just a wonderful fable. And so it kind of makes sense then that the collected wisdom, the proverbial wisdom of ancient Israel came to be associated with the kind of proverbially wise, ancient ruler of Solomon. Um, I do have to say, if you take a close look at the stories of Solomon's life, one might want to suggest that he was a little bit less able to live out his great wisdom than he was to impose it on others. I mean, you know, there's one or two examples of him being wise, but when you read it through, I mean, he, he seems to be a life of foolishness enacted in many ways. But anyway, after introducing Solomon as the kind of mythological source of the Proverbs, and after spelling out what they will do for us if we attend to them, we come in uh, chapter 1, verse 7 to the foundation of wisdom, which I, I mentioned a few minutes ago. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Sorry, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wisdom comes ultimately not from Solomon, but from God. And we're told intriguingly that one must fear God in order to obtain wisdom. Uh, I want to suggest that in the Hebrew Bible, the theology of fear when it relates to God is a much richer concept than our modern notions of uh, trembling and terror. Again, I can think of churches I've been to over the years which would want to set God up as some kind of ogre who inspires terror in the lives of God's followers in order that they will obey the commands of the divine. I'm not sure that Does justice to what the Hebrew Bible is getting at when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10 fearing God is equated with loving God with obeying God's commands and walking in God's ways which come as a consequence of loving God in fact The use of the phrase fear of the Lord in both Exodus and Deuteronomy is always in the context of the redeemer and lawgiver of Yahweh, of the Lord, loving Israel and redeeming her from slavery. So by this understanding, fearing God is the actions that come, the appropriate response that comes to having experienced salvation. I mean, there's just a, a slight aside here. We do the Hebrew tradition violence when we think that they kept the law because God was going to smite them if they didn't. And, you know, there is a, there is a trope within Christianity, and Luther did not help on this one, where we kind of think that the, um, the ancient Jews were this law-bound people living under the yoke and burden of the law terrified of not obeying the commands of god until jesus sailed in and released them from it and set up a new community of you know free spiritual beings that is a really unhelpful pastiche of uh, ancient israel's relationship to uh, their god and actually it's a pastiche that f- has fed in the contemporary era into much of what became European anti-Semitism. So this, this, this way of thinking about how Israel relates to Israel's God is something that has very contemporary relevance to us. Um, the law is not given in order that people must obey it or they're going to face the consequences. It's the wrong way round. God saves Israel first. God leads Israel from slavery in Egypt through wilderness into promised land. Israel wants to know how to live well under God's leadership. And so the commandments emerge as a way of responding well to what God has done. They're not given in order that if you obey them, a terrible God will smite you. And I think we need to hear that and we need to understand it because it it firstly is of relevance to contemporary contexts around anti-Semitism. But secondly, it helps us read the Proverbs differently. These are not just an extension of an oppressive law code which we must obey because we're scared of God. Rather, the fear of the Lord arises from what God has already done for you, reaching out to you in love. Embracing you, rescuing you, saving you. Then the question is, how then shall we live in the love of God? And then the advice comes. Think about this. Think about this. Don't do that. That will, that will break the covenant. If you do that, that's going to break down what with the relationship you've got with God. So the do-nots that emerge are not oppressive do-nots. They are do-not born of love and relationship that comes from God and extends from us back to God fearing God therefore refers to a loving reverence for God the one who has already brought us close and then by extension to a way of living that fits with such an attitude CS Lewis got this right Uh, I don't know if you've read The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I read these as a child and have read them about every 10 years since. And every time I do, I realize how much of my theology was shaped by uh, these wonderful series of children's books. But there's the bit in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe where the children uh, are with the beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are telling the children about Aslan who is the the kind of the Christ figure in, in these stories. And Mr. Beaver says to the children, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought Aslan was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who ever said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. The Fear Um, of the Lord. The fear of the God who created the universe, but who nonetheless desires and deigns to be in relationship with you, and with me, and with us. That is the prerequisite for wisdom. Such proper fear teaches us our place in the world, and how to live well in it. We are very prone as human beings to putting ourselves on our own little pedestals. Go you, you're the best, you can do it, you're worth it. Yeah, you probably can, and yeah you are. But only because God is first, and because God loves you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Fearing God is both the starting point of the journey into wisdom and the foundation on which a life of wisdom is built. It is both a response to what God has already done for us and also the means to continue our lifelong journey of using wisdom to find God's ways in every area of creation. And it's this idea of wisdom as a journey that takes us into our second reading from chapter 3. I'm just going to read a couple of verses for for you again trust in the Lord with all your heart do not rely on your own insights in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths do not be wise in your own eyes fear the Lord and turn away from evil it will be a healing for your flesh and a refreshment for your body The key idea here is that wisdom is good for us. It's the path of healing and refreshment. Godly wisdom is concerned with life lived according to the grain of creation itself. It isn't some abstract philosophizing or about ethical concepts. It's about seeking to draw our very lives into harmony with the created order because God is in all things and God is through all things and God's wisdom therefore puts us in tune with creation. What is in view here is more than just my life or your life or even our life together. What is in view here is how humans can live well with this planet of ours. And my goodness me, We need to discover that wisdom. So, to conclude, my challenge for us today is to consider the basis on which we live. What voices do you listen to? What voices do we attend to in the real world decisions of our lives? You know, when you want to know what to spend your money on, where to invest your money, what to do with your time and your energy and your efforts, how to live your relationships. What voices are you allowing into your brain? It might just be, what newspaper do you read? What social media do you engage with? Do not underestimate the drip-feed power of such things. What voices fill our ears and engage our eyes? And then within that consideration, perhaps a deeper and more spiritual question, because wisdom comes from God. What space do you make to hear the voice of God? This is the spiritual direction question, isn't it? Where do you go? to hear the voice of God because it is in those places that you will hear God whispering into your deepest being the counter-narrative of godly wisdom. So the question I leave with you, and we'll come back to this a little bit at the church meeting this afternoon in devotions, where do you go? to hear the voice of God.
2: Let's all come before God in prayer. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we bow before our great and mighty God, creator of heaven and earth, ruler over all things, And yet a God who cares for all and cares for us and cares for us in all things. You raise up mighty empires, you bring those empires down. We pray for the empires of this world. May they be founded upon peace and justice, not on greed or military might. We ask that you bring peace to the nations that you end wars in Ukraine, Myanmar, Ethiopia and Sudan. There are many peoples in the world who in their own country dwell with strife among them. We pray that the the Chinese people and the Uyghur people the Burmese people and the Rohingya people, the Israelis and Palestinians, might even now find peace, that they might end exclusion and persecution. Help us all to dwell in peace with one another and not seek to exclude to other other people and to rule on division. (coughs) We pray this day for elections in Cambodia and Spain. And we pray that those elections might be conducted peacefully and fairly, that they might bring about just and stable government. We acknowledge the injustice in our own society. Division and unfairness mar the peace from war that we enjoy, but it is not a peace from conflict and strife. We pray that those in power might set an example of justice, of fairness, of inclusion, of seeking to serve one another in our community. May we ourselves seek to be peacekeepers in our own lives, in everything we say and do, in the things we post online, and in how we deal with one another. Bring peace to our nation, we pray. Our hearts can be full of conflict. We can battle in our hearts with grief, with anxiety, with stress, illness, remorse and regrets. We ask that each one of us might know the perfect peace of God, that we might trust the perfect wisdom of God in all our uncertainty, and we ask that we might all feel, that we might all know, and that we might display the love of God in our hearts, in our minds, and in our actions this day and evermore. We bring these prayers to you in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: So go into God's world with love,
2: hope, joy and
1: faith in your hearts. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Creator, Redeemer and Sustainer be with each one of us today and forevermore. Amen.